From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. From time to time, we re-air a conversation that stuck with us at Stay Tuned. This week, we're revisiting a conversation I had with Frank Bruni in January of this year. Bruni has worn many different distinguished hats at the New York Times over the last 25 years. From Metro reporter, to White House correspondent, to chief restaurant critic, and now to opinion writer. He writes a weekly newsletter reflecting on politics, culture, food, the use of language, and many other topics of interest. He's also a professor of journalism and public policy at Duke University, and the author of many books, including his most recent memoir, The Beauty of Dusk, on vision, lost, and found. We spoke about polarizing political rhetoric heading into 2024, how AI is changing the fabric of writing, and how an unusual medical ailment he experienced in 2017 changed his outlook on life. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Frank Bruni, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a great honor to have you. Way overdue. I've been a fan for a very long time, and uh, I like everything that you put out. My first question to you is, given what's going on in our politics and that you write about politics and public policy, you teach public policy at Duke, do you, do you long for the simpler days of being a restaurant critic? <laughs> If, if the, I didn't mean to presume that those were simpler days, but no, no, it's it a, just strikes me that if you could luxuriate in a bisque, maybe that's just <laughs> nicer and more pleasant than what you have to figure out now. Uh, the thoughts are certainly kind of prettier, uh, if prettier is a word <laughs> we can use as relates to food. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I long for them in that sense, but but I tell you, what it, people I don't think appreciate, unless they've been in the hot seat of restaurant critic for an influential newspaper, is you, as angry as politicians get at you, Preet, or as angry as politicians get at me, nothing compared to restaurateurs <laughs> who have just received a bad review. Nothing. Did you wear disguises? Like, how did that work? Um, I reserved in fake names. I had credit cards in fake names. You know, mm-hmm. the Times actually had to have a like kind of personal conversation with an agreement with American Express because I I changed my fake credit cards about every six months. Right. But I didn't wear disguises because a it's really hard to pull off a good disguise, and so they're not always successful. But on top of that, it takes an enormous amount of work. The one time I did disguise myself, a restaurateur had made a public proclamation that he so hated my reviews of his restaurants 
that he was not going to let me review the next one. And he had offered a, a reward to any staff member who saw me come through the door and correctly spotted me and threw me out. And so for that restaurant, for the three visits I made there, I wore elaborate disguises. I had wigs that were styled <laughs> for my head. Um, and it just it convinced me of something I knew already, which is you cannot disguise yourself night after night and get the job done and not be distracted by it and not spend your entire life in hair and makeup, essentially. So what percentage of the time when you were not disguised, did the folks at the restaurant know who you were? I would say in the first year of the job, maybe 40% of the time. By the fifth year, probably 85% okay. of the time. Um, it's just it's just unavoidable, you know? And so so what does that introduce? What, what distortions does that introduce into the review <laughs> process? In other words, you know, are, are, they, are they lavishing more love and flavor on your food? Are they serving you better? Do they seem nervous? How do you account for whatever distortion your presence creates? Well, I mean, you, you you notice certain things and you and you temper the amount of weight you give them in a review. There are things that – the good news is there are things that can't change. They can't go out and find a new supplier. They can't go out and find a new line cook. Um, they can't, you know, they can't remake the recipes. What they can do and what they do do, and, you know, I learned all about this later, um, is really, really uh, nervous self-regarding restaurants would – um, to use kitchen lingo, they would fire two versions of your entire table's order, right? And then they would look, <laughs> and then they would see look and see one. like, yeah, which duck came out better, which which steak looks better, and they would bring you that. So you know that that's happening, and you have to kind of account for that. Um, and yeah, it would be hilarious. I mean, I uh, I would walk in, and they often didn't spot you until like minute ten or minute twenty five. And um, one of the ways I could always tell is if I had uh, a female server. And they figured out 25 minutes in that it was me because they also knew I was gay. All of a sudden, the best looking male server um, <laughs> in the place had taken over the table. You know, what you're talking about reminds me of a podcast I did a few years ago with my friend David Chang. And he talked about something that I thought was, was fascinating. And I wonder if you experienced this. Obviously, he's an owner of restaurants and a chef uh, of, of great repute. And he said, you know, people that he knows and, and, and restaurants that he's run – Sometimes when a reviewer or a VIP person was coming in, the inclination of sometimes of the chef or the head chef would be, you know, I need to personally prepare the meal and chop the vegetables and do all the preparatory work because I'm the chef. When, as Dave points out, it's been a while since the chef has done that. And, you know, the line cooks are actually very, very good at that. And they shouldn't be replaced just because you have a reviewer or a VIP. Does that scenario make any sense to you? Oh, it makes total sense. A, a restaurant is really about systems. You know, what someone like David Chang, who is a, is a great chef, a great restaurateur, what someone like him does uh, is they put systems in place. They put people in place. It's, it's a managerial role as much as it is the role of an artist. And I agree with him. I think a chef can actually make the mistake of showing up and getting involved and disrupting what has become a sort of spontaneous, effortless system after exacting setup. Um, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, another way I could often tell I'd been made was if a restaurant had an open kitchen, often halfway through the meal, but not before, I would notice, oh, there's Jean-Georges von Richten. He wasn't here at the beginning of the meal, <laughs> but he has, he has taxied over from whichever other restaurant he was at to make sure that the restaurant could exceed him standing in the kitchen and gets the sense that he's never neglecting this particular restaurant in his empire. A couple more questions about restaurants and food. We'll, we'll come back to it after we do some some politics, some language, and there are a few things I want to ask you about your, yourself. Have restaurants in America 
gotten appreciably better over the last 20 years overall? Absolutely. Um, Why is that? Well, because more and more Americans have have become, I hate the word, but it's a convenient one, foodies, right? I mean, this tracks exactly with the expansion of food coverage in our magazines and in our newspapers. Um, it tracks exactly with the explosion of the food network and all the food television. Um, in the last 20, 30 years, Americans became much more interested in food. Many Americans became much more sophisticated about food, and that created a market for restaurants. Um, and a set of standards for restaurants that was different from 25, 40 years ago. Last question about restaurants at this moment. Do you agree with me that restaurants should go back, all of them, should go back to the actual paper menu? <laughs> um, I do. I agree with you. I, first of all, every time, I don't know about you, Preet, but every time they have one of those damn camera codes, right? And you hold your phone over it. I, I would can't get it open. 40% of the time it doesn't work. And then like your, your, <laughs> your meal, the spell of the meal has been broken because your first 10 minutes are one of the servers trying to see if it works on their phone, trying to handle your phone. I mean, it's like a ballet that yeah, begins you, with you a bunch your, of crap You try not to pull your phone out for a nice meal with your family or with colleagues or friends. Then you get a Twitter notification and, you know, yeah, you're down yeah. a bad path right from the outset. Okay, so I also I also enjoy the aesthetics of looking at a menu. I, I mean, in before before menus started to go away, you could kind of get some of your first accurate impressions of a restaurant and what it was trying to do and what its style and sensibility were from looking at the way they put together the menu, everything about it. Yeah, some menus are, are well, actually, scratch that. I want, to, I want to move on to something else. So, Frank, let's talk about politics, which I know you're a keen observer of. Is this the part of the podcast that's uplifting? <laughs> yeah, well, no. That's why I thought yeah. we'd begin with we'd yeah. begin with food. We might come back to food. Period. Maybe we'll periodically. We might come need back to come back. We might need to come food. back to food. I'll just throw in a random food, random food, <laughs> because I have a lot of questions about that. We could do a whole episode just on that experience. But there's a person I want to ask you about that some people might say, "Pre, you talk about him too much." But 2024 is not far away, and that's Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. And so I'll ask various guests about Ron DeSantis because I, I don't really know what to make of the guy. I don't know if he has a glass jaw or not. I've mentioned that before. But you've written colorfully, as you write about a lot of things, about Ron DeSantis. And you describe him as, um, what's the phrase you use? You say, he's the seething protagonist of a revenge thriller. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What I find fascinating about Ron DeSantis, and I do not mean fascinating in the positive sense, is we live in this era where so much of politics is negative, so much of the appeal uh, that partisans make, that politicians make to the partisans whom they want to have voting for them, so much of the appeal is negative. These are our enemies. This is how I will torture our enemies. And Ron DeSantis is the poster boy for that. Everything that he does that makes news, if you think about it, it's not about constructive stuff. It's not about a positive policy vision. It's all about defining and naming enemies and torturing them. Walt Disney, I'm going to remove your special status. Gay teachers, I'm going to shut you up. Vaccine makers, I'm going to take you to court. He kind of has tried to figure out whom his base is most hateful towards, whom they hate the most, and he goes after them. And his pitch is essentially, no one tortures our enemies like I torture our enemies. And it's a very scary spectacle because if that's what politics becomes about, I, I don't know how we ever find any common ground again. I don't know how we ever reclaim any civility. Well, isn't a lot of politics about defining yourself in terms of who your enemies are? I mean, I do it sort of good-naturedly and in, in good humor 
even in my Twitter bio, you know, I, I, in my Twitter bio, I have fired by Trump, banned by Putin. And I have said on occasion, <laughs> I'm not running for office and, and it's not a platform of mine, but I'm a little bit proud of who my enemies are, uh, including some, some crazy people on, on Twitter and on social media. And, you know, people on the left do it. They, maybe it's deserved, maybe it's not, but they identify their enemies as Wall Street and sometimes the rich, sometimes the powerful. Is, is there something inherently wrong with the idea of delineating yourself in terms of who your enemies are? I think there's something inherently dangerous about it, and I think it's a matter of proportion. Yes, we all do it. It's, it's, it's part of human nature, and it is one way to define yourself. But I think you have to define yourself in numerous ways. Um, and Joe Biden's a good example of that. Uh, there was a kind of freak out when he started giving speeches and started denouncing MAGA Republicans. And the reason people freaked out and were so struck by it is because Joe Biden had actually taken a much different tack to get to the presidency. His whole pitch to Americans was, you know, I, I, I'm not going to speak in that way. Um, I'm going to turn down the temperature on everything. And that was his pitch because he understood how important it is and was, I mean, how important it was and is. If we only define ourselves in terms of our enemies, if we only uh, rally and rouse support by talking about how we're going to make sure our enemies uh, can't enter the public square or don't have votes, or et cetera, et cetera, there's no way we're ever going to be able to forge the sorts of compromises that legislation requires. And there, there's no way we're ever going to find common ground again in this country is in a perilous place in all of those regards. It seems to be not to be cynical. None of that is going to matter so long as defining yourself by virtue of your enemies is effective political strategy. Is there anything to suggest that will in the near future cease to be an effective political strategy? Uh, I, Biden's election. If you look at the spread of Democrats who ran, I would say he spoke of all of them in perhaps the softest and, and not conciliatory, but he spoke in perhaps the softest voice as, as pertains to naming enemies and venting any sort of kind of disapproval or disgust toward them. And Americans at that moment in time decided they wanted that. So yeah, I think there's some hope. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. 
Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. There's this other phenomenon that you also talk about, and it's, uh, it's not just the juxtaposition of a particular figure as against his or her enemies. It's also the comparison of someone in the spectrum of other political figures. And there is this phenomenon, this dynamic in which DeSantis, people have said this, you know, may appear sensible and centrist. I think that's Musk's phrase. And you write, in what universe? He's sensible and centrist only by the warped yardsticks of Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Carrie Lake, and the like, but those yardsticks will be used frequently as various Republicans join the 2024 fray. The introduction of people like MTG and others, describe how warped that causes the political sort of competition to become. Well, I mean, they, they in stretching the kind of measuring stick of possibility, you see this happening already, and it's an enormous danger for the media, for journalism, as the 2024 race takes shape. You're not moderate just because you're not Marjorie Taylor Greene. I saw this in the coverage of Kevin McCarthy's constipated ascent to House Speaker. Wait, his, hear, I'm sorry, his his what? His constipated, his constipated ascent. ascent. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ponder that for a minute. Well, I mean, <laughs> I like, it's a it's I a like fair descri- it's a fair description, right? It was it was constipated, um, and I would I would read stories about it. And after a story had talked about Matt Gates and and uh, Lauren Boebert, and in that case, Marjorie Taylor Greene was not blocking Kevin McCarthy's way, but they would talk about those, in my in my view, wackadoodle Republicans um, who were staging a, a tantrum or a snit and and trying to block him. And then they would interview another Republican and say a, a moderate Republican. But it's like, whoa, 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 there, there aren't really many moderate Republicans in the Republican Party of this particular moment. That party has moved so far to the right um, that there are very few genuine moderates there anymore, certainly very few genuine moderates who have any say and sway. But we sometimes put that label on people who are not Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are not talking about space rays and QAnon and microchips and vaccines. And that's a real danger. We have to be careful of that. Now, is Joe Biden a moderate or is he too, does he too appear to be a moderate because there are people like Bernie Sanders and AOC and others in the Democratic Party? Joe Biden is a mix. I think it's a great question. And I think um, you could get smart people to argue the answer to that either way. If we look at some of the economic uh, solutions coming out of the pandemic, and that's an important distinction coming out of the pandemic, if we look at some of his economic prescriptions, they certainly are far more liberal than Joe Biden had previously seen seemed. Um, and they're pretty far to the left. If you look at the totality of Joe Biden, um, you know, which includes a whole lot more in terms of the way he speaks about cultural issues, et cetera, um, I think it's hard to paint him as being anywhere near the extreme left. Um, but it's a mixed bag, and it's a mixed bag that's harder to 
analyze and pinpoint because circumstances are so different than they were five years ago. I mean, everybody kind of governs in response to the circumstances of his or her time. And that's part of what you're seeing with him. Yeah. You know, I find it interesting that there are people on the right and whatever you think of Joe Biden, like him, not like him, want to vote for him, don't want to vote for him, think he's too old, think he's just fine, that there are people who seem to say with sincerity that Joe Biden is a crazy extremist. Now, I'm biased in favor of his policies. <laughs> but how, how does that resonate with people who live in the real universe? I don't think it resonates at all. I don't think they experience him that way. I think that that's a lot of rhetoric that is aimed at getting far right and 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 close to far right Republicans to turn out for primary elections and to flood the Twitter sphere or whatever will come after the Twitter sphere, et cetera. Um, but I also think we're falling into a little bit of a trap here, Preet, and I, I do it all the time uh, in my writing. And then I kind of look back and I catch myself. I think we are too frequently talking in a left-right binary. We're too we're yeah. too often looking at the spectrum of possibilities solely in terms of left and right. Um, I think there's a kind of different thing that comes into play. And I'm not sure most Americans outside of the people who are loud on social media, outside of the people who are, um, you know, enormous rabble-rousers and primaries. I'm not sure most Americans look at Joe Biden in particular, but other politicians, and ask exactly where they are on the left-right spectrum. I think they ask, is this person solution-oriented or destruction-oriented? Um, is this person someone who seems like they're trying to promote a rational discussion or someone who seems to be throwing a tantrum? I think those are binaries, for lack of a better word, that are every bit as important and relevant to many voters as the right-left thing. I want to talk about writing and language for a little bit. That relates to politics some, but I don't want to talk about it in that vein. And my intro to talking about writing is the thing that now we have to talk about on every episode, apparently, and that's chat GPT. <laughs> what was that sound? Let the record reflect. That, that Frank Bruni made a weird sound when I mentioned that, ChatGPT. Well, that, that was the sound of someone who uh, who is a professor and teaches students and now on top of plagiarism, which here at Duke I've never encountered in one of my students, and but now mm. on top of you know worrying about plagiarism and worrying about other sorts of stuff, I have to worry as anybody teaching at, I was going to say at the college level, but it's true at the high school or middle school level too, has to, I have to worry about what ChatGPT means in terms of the authorship of a piece of work that is submitted yeah. to you for grading. Yeah. So just for people who have um, not been following, ChatGPT is a particular chatbot by OpenAI. It's artificial intelligence. You can query it and it will do things for you, including you know, writing papers or writing, uh, you know, doing other kinds of writing assignments in the, the style that you want. There are limitations, but the results of something that's still pretty nascent are impressive. You have written that ChatGPT is, quote, a surprisingly competent writer, and sometimes even a clever one, to the point where early users regard it as some mix of software and sorcery. Have you seen these stories about how ChatGPT lies? Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and makes up studies. So, you know, it's quite human after all. Yes. Totally wholesale makes up studies. And even when instructed not to lie, it will still lie. Yeah. Well, um, I've seen those stories. And also, I mean, I think we're all of us are a little bit too focused right now because this is the way things work in, in kind of media and public discussion on chat GPT as, as, as a fake author, right? As, as an author of things that human beings should be authoring themselves. But I think it's the kind of tip of the iceberg. This is, this is when we talk about what, what sorts of jobs automation will come for. 
um, and what sorts of things machines and computers can do that once required human beings. This is, this is an example and a metaphor and the kind of front edge of all of that. Um, and that's what really freaks me out beyond just what sorts of tools my students are using, which is a minor question in the scheme of things. Um, how many jobs that exist today, how many of us um, who have what we, what, we feel, what we feel and experience as meaningful labor that gives us a sense of pride and purpose, what happens to the sense of human purpose as machines do more and more of the things that we used to do? I think that's a, a, a huge spiritual crisis. Right. But some people would say, and it depends on the exact function that's being taken over by the machine, it frees you up to engage in higher pursuits. I mean, some people might say, depending on what kind of writing you do in your profession, that ChatGPT is not going to replace you, but ChatGPT can do the first draft. Mm -hmm. And then you layer in human personality and cleverness and style and additional substance, and maybe you have more time to do the research, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't know. It remains, I mean, you, do you have some optimism that it can be, you know, it can give us greater liberty or not? Well, it, could, it, could, it certainly could give us greater free time and greater liberty, but I have questions. Um, so where's your salary coming from if the machine's doing that? So now you have greater free, now you have more free time and greater liberty. Do you have the economic agency to do something? with that free time and that liberty. Also, we're living in an era where people's attachment to religion has waned, people's communities um, have, uh, many people have lost any kind of sense of, of connection to their communities as they've moved online, as life has become fractured in various ways. Freed up from work, which is often a source of connection, identity, pride, productivity, purpose for people, freed up and then what takes its place. So many of the things that might take its place are on the decline in modern life. What makes a good sentence? Oh, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I'm no expert on that. But I think a good sentence is lucid. Um, it accomplishes whatever task it attends to. I mean, it, it accomplishes whatever task it intends to accomplish with, a, with vigor, with vividness, directly. And it stands out from the sentences around it. You know, I mean, a good sentence is a long sentence if it's coming after a bunch of staccato sentences. And a good sentence is a short sentence if it is coming on the heels of a lot of Rococo syntax. I'm a snob about the written word because I grew up in a family that revered the written word and because I've made a life in words. Um, and I hope that I sometimes write in a competent um, and even compelling way. Um, but there are many, many, many other ways to express yourself. And today's young people may not be as fluent or as fluid with the written word as their, as their kind of analogs 20 or 30 years were, um, but they're much, much better with other media and there are many different ways to communicate. That's pretty good. That's a good silver lining. Um, I take it also a good sentence doesn't have what you call words that are worth sidelining. <laughs> and you have this feature and, and you talk about words that you think kind of suck or phrases that kind of suck. And I want to point to one in, one in particular because I use it a lot. And I've often thought, I, I will often say the phrase, it is what it is, right? We use it all the time, which you know, language observers and experts and um, practitioners of writing decry. Um, I just think it's a pretty good tautology. Why do you dislike it? 
Well, partly because of its ubiquity. You know, when something becomes as overused as it is what it is, or any number of other phrases, it just kind of sounds like white noise. It sounds like yeah. meaningless cant. But Frank, um, it, is, it, it is what it is. <laughs> I could, well, exactly. I could say um, that about the phrase, it's, you know. Very I mean, I've, I've heard I've heard too many people say it is what it is as if they have just just scaled the summit of philosophy, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and that drives me crazy. But um, yeah, no, I do in my weekly New York Times newsletter, which I'd love people to read. Um, I, I have a, an occasional feature called Wordsworth Sidelining. And it is what it is was one of the most nominated phrases or words. I I I I say to readers, please write in with words that you think should be words and phrases that should be retired forever. And sometimes what I choose is a reflection of what people write in because I'm I'm blessed enough to have readers who are very very engaged and do write in by the scores and hundreds. Um, and along with the phrase at the end of the day. Oh, at the end of the day, I, that's a little crazy. Right. Um, uh, at the end of, along with that phrase, which I wrote about the most nominated phrase by readers who were like, will you please sound the death knell for fill in the blank? It is what it is, was a, was a very popular choice. <laughs> the one thing that I also railed against in that feature, I mean, railed in a good natured sense, I hope, that features, I try to write that feature in a, in a humorous way. Um, I begged for the retirement of no worries. Right. As an answer, like, you know, thank you, no worries, or it was nice of you to do that, no worries. Um, and and those damn syllables still come out of my mouth, although now it's like a, a comedy routine because I start to say no what and then I then I kind of catch myself and I lash myself on the back and I But is um, there what is so let's say in an email correspondence, um this happens all here's here's a context in which it's used. You're you're going to meet someone for lunch or a drink or dinner, and they're running five minutes late. Hey, running five minutes late, what is the appropriate response? And why isn't it no worries? I mean, no worries is a perfectly fine response. It's just again so threadbare and 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 nauseating with overuse. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, you could say don't worry about it. I mean, thank you, 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 you thank you, 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 you is overused too. But we don't say don't use thank you because it's overused. Uh, that's fair. That's it's fair. a way of letting people off the hook. No worries. But no worries. We're not in Australia. You know, no worries comes from <laughs> Crocodile Dundee in Australia, right? You know, but what if you're meeting someone for I mean, a Vegemite veg sandwich? I mean, Preet, you're, you're here in the United States, not in England. How often do you say cheerio, mate? Probably never, right? So why no worries? But it's become Americanized. I don't know. I don't know. I like to, do, uh, do you find yourself using exclamation marks in email and text correspondence more than you did before? Um, I did for a while, and then I realized how mannered and sort of um, just just faddish that had become. So I've actually been on an exclamation point diet for about five years now. And- is that being perceived poorly by your colleagues who think you're being more blunt and not as effusive as they want you to be? I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. They may feel I you lack passion. They may feel like I'm I'm a milk toast person with no affect and no and no gusto for anything because I've exiled exclamation points from my life. I, I feel like when we were talking about thank you a minute ago, that at the end of a of a text or an email to colleagues, if you end with a mere thank you, with either no punctuation or a period. Maybe maybe that's dismissive and not thankful enough. Do you think that's the evolution that we've had? Uh, it might be because you know it's 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 sort of in, in a weird way uh, we're sort of back to the to the distorting aspects of having Marjorie Taylor Greens and Matt Gates in the world. You know when the standard when the standard gets changed, where how does everything seem in relation to it? I don't know. I mean, um, 
I I have reached a point where it's clear to me everybody communicates in a different way when it comes to courtesies and how to end an, end a, end an email. I much prefer a seemingly flaccid thank you without an exclamation point or without all sorts of modifiers. I prefer that to an XOXOXO from someone who, I, who so for someone who I, I'm not really in a position to want or get kisses and hugs from, you know. But XOXOXO has become some sort of like code that no longer means what it used to mean, which is kisses and hugs, which I would argue are are not appropriate in the professional context. Hear more of our conversation in just a moment. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So this is an awkward segue into something much more serious. I said I want to talk about you a little bit. And I'd like to spend the last few minutes we have together having you talk about something that you've shared with the world about a medical problem you had about five years ago. Can you tell us what happened? And then I'm going to ask you how that affected you and how it's changed your life. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, about five years ago, um, I woke up one morning uh, in October on a Saturday and uh, my vision was was different, compromised, blurry. And to make uh, a very long story short, I found out in the coming days that I'd had a very rare sort of stroke of my right optic nerve, um, that the vision from my right eye was ruined forevermore, and that the science of this, the literature of this uh, suggested that there was a 20% chance 
um, in the coming years or at some point in the future that the same exact thing would happen with my left eye. So I was in a position where I was suddenly having to learn to operate with compromised vision, learn how to kind of see with one eye and edit my right eye out of the equation and everything that entailed, which was slower reading, more error-prone writing. And I also had to come to terms with the fact that there was a 20% chance, and there remains, as I talk with you right now, a 20% chance I'll go blind. And that's a lot to deal with in, in one fell swoop. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote a book recently. I think the paperback is coming out soon called The Beauty of Dusk. Explain the title. Um, after this happened to me, Preet, I had, I had the kind of work ahead of me. I mean, emotional work, that sort of thing that anybody who has this sort of, there are all sorts of, of medical um, traumas, mishaps that happen to us, especially as we age. And part of the book is about aging. Um, I mean, I had to figure out how to deal with limitations and how to look at the changes in my life um, in a positive way, as opposed to from the framework of kind of loss. And The Beauty of Dusk, which is the name of my book, um, that is a reference to both lifespan, um, kind of being closer to the end of the day than the beginning of the day, but it's also a reference to how you can take a different kind of inventory and survey of your life um, and focus on what blessings you still have, focus on the beauty in it, as opposed to uh, as opposed to the hardships and the challenges. I found that in in confronting these new challenges, in 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 meeting them head on, uh, in not falling prey to self pity and not being undone by them. I found sorts of joys and satisfactions um, and senses of pride that I hadn't before. And I, I know that can sound a little Pollyanna-ish, but I, but I think it's true for a lot of people who've been through the kind of thing I've been through. And so the book is, is basically about meeting a life challenge in that fashion and trying to come out the other side of it um, as, as whole, as positive, and as grateful as possible. I will point out for the record that in your answer, you correctly and in a non-trite way use the phrase at the end of the day. I noticed that myself. And, um, <laughs> there but are you know usages. what? You know what? You know what? Pre- the beauty no of dust. No worries. <laughs> no worries. Thank you. <laughs> That's hard. The exclamation mark is hard to convey. Um, yeah. So I, I just want to ask you a little more about that because not everybody, in the face of distress or a physical change like that, or risk of you know what many would consider quite a debilitating physical limitation would look to the positive. You know, you have said that you were terrified of the idea that you would lose all of, all of your eyesight and you're not anymore. You hope you never do, but you're just not, ter- how do you get over being terrified about that? And how can you explain it in a way that people who are listening to this, who themselves are experiencing hardship or at risk of greater hardship, lose the fear of it? For starters, I don't think everybody can get over the terror of it or the anxiety or the self-pity. I mean, I think we're all wired in different ways. Um, And one of my great blessings, it turned out, one of my great bits of good fortune is that I was able to. And and that's not a triumph of character. That's probably uh, the grace of of, of biochemistry or whatever endowment I've been given. But I was someone who who was often a pessimist. I was someone um, who, if you'd a, if you told me this was going to happen to me, I would have said, "Well, I'm just going to be undone by that. I'm just going to live the rest of my life curled into a fearful ball in the fetal position in bed." Um, but if you have this ability, and you should certainly test yourself and see if you have this ability, y- you have to kind of think and realize there is no point to the terror, right? What does that get you? There's no point to self pity. 
What does that get you? None of that changes your tomorrows. And if you plan on having and spending those tomorrows, um, you're going to be in a much better position and you're going to be much happier uh, within the realm of possible bits of happiness you can have um, if you if you move past feeling sorry for yourself to the best extent you can. If you move past the terror, um, you know, we're talking about the fact that I still live with this 20% chance that I'll go blind. Um, I can sit here and focus on that and say, you know, holy crap, that's going to be so hard. But it's going to be hard whether I worry about it now or not. And the other thing is, it's not going to take everything away from me. I have lost things already. And there is so much left. There's so much that remains. And when I choose to focus on that, so, you know, Preet, to give you an example, we're talking here, you know, because I'm a journalist and you're interested in, you know, current affairs and journalism and all of that. It takes me longer to write than it used to because I have to circle back and find and fix all these typos that were never there before because of my compromised vision. It takes me longer to read the material that I'm consuming in order to write. I can rage about that. I can feel really sorry for myself about that. Or I can say, holy shit, the New York Times still runs my stuff. It still wants my work. <laughs> given given the fact that I still have this, this microphone and given the fact that I still have this, you know, uh, this invitation to share my thinking and work with the world, I would be some kind of ingrate and moron to focus on the fact that it takes me longer than it used to. And that's the kind of thinking that I think it's important to try to get to if you're able to when you're in a situation like this. Does this mean, and at the risk of raising your ire, that you sometimes think about your situation, you accept it, and you say to yourself, not out loud, but you say to yourself, you know, it is what it is. I will never say it in those syllables, Preet, but I suppose I say the philosophical equivalent to that in less overused and I hope more poetic language. Right. You can say it to yourself. You can say it to yourself. Do, do you see differently now? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I see, well, I see differently in every which way. And it's why the it's why the subtitle of the book, which is a little bit kind of gimmicky, is on vision lost and found. Um, I see differently in the sense that there are blurry patches of my vision and I don't have... Um, I don't have the sort of kind of depth of field. I it, it's hard. I can't parallel park anymore, which among the world among the losses in a life is not a terrible yeah. one. Well, I have um, I have eyesight in both my eyes, and I can't parallel park either. <laughs> see, there you go, and that's and no, but that's an important perspective. But I, I also see differently. I um I have when I go through the day. When I go, my favorite thing every day is when I go into the woods near my house and explore the trails with my dog, Regan, who's the love of my life. Um, I see differently. I see the creek that we cross over differently. I see the trees ahead of us differently. I am able in a way I wasn't before. And it's a shame that this had to happen to me for this for, for me to get to this place. I see everything with a sort of emotional precision and a gratitude that was absent from my life before. Because in a very cliched way, I'm, I realized by dint of what happened to me, um, how quickly things can change um, and how fast things can be taken away from you. Do you worry that that will fade and that you will just become accustomed to the new normal and not feel the same zest for looking at things that you do now? I don't because I, I catch, I feel that happening to a certain point all the time and I catch myself. I was always a champion stewer, Preet. Like I, I was someone, <laughs> I, I, I was someone who could not stew steward, it, not steward, but stewer. I, I, I could, st I could stew and marinate in my disappointments and resentments like nobody else, right? I was, I was, you know, a, a, my own kind of emotional piece of beef bourguignon or something, just to bring us back to restaurants and food. Um, now, when that, 
when that old tropism comes back, when I feel it happening, time and again, I am able this many years into this experience to say, Frank, you're doing that ridiculous thing um, and you know better now. And I correct myself over and over again. And I have no reason to believe I'll stop correcting myself. You said something that I've been thinking about since I saw it. As commencement speaker at your alma mater at UNC last year, about the choice that people make that will have as much bearing on your decency as a human being and on your happiness as any choice that you will make. And the choice as you describe it is, quote, whether you're going to be somebody who counts her blessings or somebody who tallies her slights. Exactly. Can you amplify that? Well, it's what I meant when I talked about my blessings are, my slights are, um, it's harder for me to do the work that I've chosen to do in my life and that has been my, 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 my purpose in my life, but it's harder for me to do that than ever before. That's a slight. I can focus on that, or I can focus on the blessing of the fact that I still have an invitation to do that work. Um, by focusing on that blessing, um, I'm a much more contented person, but I'm also a more decent person because that's the truth of the situation. You know, the other thing I realized, Preet, and I wish we would all do this in our lives, and I, I write a whole chapter of the book about this, which I call the sandwich board theory of life. Um, if we all would pause and do a truly honest and open-eyed inventory of all the people in our immediate circle, of all the people in the circle beyond that, everyone has dealt with or is dealing with some very profound disappointments and challenges in their lives. Most of them are not visible to the naked eye. Most of them are, are, are uh, you know, emotional things they've been through, even diseases they've battled that we can't see on the surface. It is struggle is a part of life. Setbacks are a part of life. Illness, you know, uh, infirmity is a part of life. And once you kind of realize that and stop judging where you are by the lacquered images you get over people's Instagram and Facebook feeds, um, you are able, I think, to adjust toward the blessings and to see yourself in a more truthful fashion and to kind of find the sort of gratitude you should have for those aspects of your life that have gone well. So going back to restaurants and eating, you've been very forthright and candid about your struggles with weight at various times of your life. And one would think that during the years that you were eating professionally, that would have been difficult in terms of your relationship with your weight. And in fact, you have written, the opposite is true. How can that be? Um, yeah, no, the opposite was totally true. I, I've never been fitter and thinner in my life than the years I was restaurant critic. I wish I could get back to that fitness and thinness now. <laughs> and no, by truly. the way, when you were going to restaurants, I meant to ask you this earlier, one reason why you might be given away is that you probably, I'm guessing, as a critic, and you want to sample a lot of food, you're ordering more than the average person might order, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, you're, 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 you're going with three other people usually. Uh, four is sort of the perfect table size. You're telling everybody to order different dishes, and then you're treating the table as almost kind of like a lazy Susan. You know, you're rotating things around because your job as a critic is you're trying to sample as much of the menu as possible. So how did you not gain weight? And, and by the way, it's free, right? The Times was paying for your meal. Oh, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> free a, food. It's a big budget item at the time. It's basically you had, a, you had an all-you-can-eat job. And, yes. And yet you maintained trimness in an all-you-can-eat job. I'm confused. Well, I mean, part of the answer is, you know, I used the verb sample before. You're not pigging out on this stuff. You're sampling it. And when you approach food as something that you're appraising, when it is a job, you're not eating as heedlessly as you do in other situations. And so there's an almost automatic portion control that happens um, because you're not approaching food as, you know, let me stuff myself. Uh, you're approaching it with much more discernment 
and that kind of is a is a hedge against overindulgence. Um, but the other thing is, most of us, when we fail to control our weights, as I'm as I'm failing some right now, um, you know, it's because we can say, you know, tomorrow I'll be good. Next week I'll go on a diet. When you're a restaurant critic, you can't diet and you can't tell yourself the lie that you're going to make up with an asceticism tomorrow for the indulgence of today. And once you remove that, once you realize, no, like every, like today and tomorrow, I cannot give up food. I have to, I have to, my only choice here is to eat in a measured fashion. Um, you, you end up doing that because of the lies you can't tell yourself. And then the other thing is when you know that every day needs as a matter of, of, of your profession to be full of a certain amount of food. Um, I never kept to exercise regimens the way I did then. I ran probably six miles most days, along with paying for my restaurant bills. The Times paid my gym membership because they saw that as a legitimate part of the restaurant (laughs) critic job. And I probably spent, I probably spent two and a half hours a day working out because I viewed that as part of my job. For me to have the appetite that I needed to have to go into those restaurants and enjoy food in the vicarious way that my readers wanted me to, for me to be able to keep doing it in a healthy fashion day after day, those hours of exercise I viewed as part of my job. And so that's how it all worked out in a, uh, in a fit fashion. Is, is there, does, it, does there stand out in your mind a singular worst meal that you ate at a restaurant that you had to review? I remember, yes, I re- <laughs> it wasn't that the meal was so singularly bad. It was that the whole experience seemed to me so grating and nonsensical. But there there was a restaurant that I, I wrote what many people told me years later they thought was my was my um, most amusing negative review. And it's a restaurant in New York called Ninja. And I think it still Already. exists. <laughs> Already I, that's a problem. And I think it still exists. Uh, and it's funny because after that review came out, many of my my friends said, well, that restaurant has a couple weeks left. And I think Ninja is still going strong. But it's going strong because parents with a lot of money take their children there because it is a bastardized version of of sushi and Japanese cuisine served in this sort of labyrinth that's like a Walt Disney ride. And the and the servers wear wear what I guess are supposed to be ninja costumes. I'm not I'm no authority on 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 authentic ninja wear. Um, you know, and they kind of scream at you and jump out of corners and and deliver your food in clouds of smoke. Um and I mean I just I wanted I wanted to end my life right there in that restaurant rather than endure the next several hours. But there's a market for that. And you know what? I mean, great, great. Different things turn us all on. Follow your bliss. You know, and embrace what makes you happy. And if um, if yelping and gyrating servers dressed <laughs> supposedly as ninjas and carrying mediocre sushi, if, if that's your bliss, great. I want to end with a question about how you felt about in- – the appreciation you had for the power you had potentially over the success or failure of a restaurant, obviously Ninja thrives, as you said. And, and the reason I asked the question is not many people know this. I've mentioned it before on the podcast, I think. My dad and my uncle and a friend of my dad's opened up the second Indian restaurant in the state of New Jersey. I think back in 1977, something like that, before Indian food was what it is today and, and widely popular, not just in urban areas, but in suburban areas too. And they put a lot of money into it. To, to recreate what they experienced as great Indian meals from uh, the country of our birth. And one day, announced with a great fanfare in our house, was the fact that there was going to be a restaurant reviewer, and it was a guy named Bob Lape, L-A-P-E, still remember his name, who was the restaurant 
critic for WABC local television. And the amount of fretting that my, my dad and my uncle did in worrying about how that review would come out was something that I had never seen before. Do you, how did you think about that? Um, I thought very seriously about it because it is it is a job much more than many other critics' jobs because there's so many film critics. There's so many people who review a television show or a book, whereas the area's restaurant critic is often the only person who, who reviews a restaurant. Um, most of the bad meals I had, Preet, I never wrote about because if it was a terrible meal – at the kind of establishment that was going to be killed off by a review that nobody was curious about, that wasn't well capitalized, I just moved on. Um, when I wrote a negative review, it was written after at least three visits to the restaurant. It was it was written after giving restaurants every benefit of the doubt. And it was most often written about a kind of restaurant that had a degree of capitalization or a degree of public curiosity about it um, that really meant it was fair game morally. Um, and the other thing I thought is, well, I wanted to always be entirely respectful and cognizant of the economic consequences of writing a negative review. I also wanted to be respectful and cognizant of people's hard-earned money. Um, you know, there are many people who swan into a restaurant with a corporate expense account, and it doesn't really hurt much if they feel they've wasted their money. There are also a great many people um, who are making a budgetary decision to spend money um, that they don't have in hyperabundance on this meal in the hope that they will have a wonderful uh, a wonderful evening. And if you can save those people um, from wasting their hard-earned money, well, I mean, that that's a moral good that's part of the picture as well. Frank Bruni, a real delight and, and treat to have you. Thanks so much. Uh, totally my pleasure. Thank you, Preet. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Frank Bruni. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is Noah Ozilai, David Kurlander, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.